following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And our text for today is verses 31 and 32. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, read these two verses. Our next passage as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Well, our study through the Sermon on the Mount has brought us to a subject that is very highly controversial and one that is deeply emotional for a lot of people. It's a sensitive, sensitive subject. And so I think it's important as we begin today to just acknowledge that we come to this issue of divorce and remarriage with a broad variety of convictions and also with a broad variety of personal experiences. You know, so, so first of all, you know, when I came and candidated here at LifePoint, there was no issue uh, that I was pressed on more than this one. I spent a lot of time uh, during those five, six days, however long we were here, interacting with different people who had questions about what I thought about this issue and, and maybe didn't necessarily agree with what I was saying, and so we're, we're pushing back. And so I know that there are a lot of people here uh, that are passionate about this subject. But second, and uh, I think it's important that we understand that people in this room have a broad range of very personal experiences with this issue of divorce and remarriage. So some of you struggled uh, as children with the divorce of your parents, and it was really hard to watch your family be broken apart, and, and maybe you are affected to this day. Now, others of you are, are very thankful that your parents endured through difficulties in their marriage and stayed together and provided you with a wonderful home. But then there's other people in this room that maybe you were traumatized by an abusive father who was very hard on you and hard on your, on your mother, but she felt trapped. And so uh, she stuck with it and she took it and she made you do the same. Of course, there's lots of people in this room who are divorced. Some of you were abandoned for no good reason at all, and that was very difficult for you to endure. Others maybe left yourself for a variety of reasons. And so today, since you are divorced, some of you are struggling to raise children all by yourself, and it is exhausting, it is overwhelming, and it's very hard. You're lonely. And then, of course, uh, among those in this room who have been divorced, there's some who have remarried. And now, maybe you enjoy a wonderful marriage compared to your first one. Or maybe there's other people in here who have stuck with a very difficult marriage for a long time. And maybe you know, you're rejoicing that, that we stuck with it, and today things are great. Or maybe you stuck with it, and they haven't gotten any better. And it is still really hard. So this is not just a theoretical, irrelevant debate, is it? I mean, this is an issue uh, where, where people in this room have been deeply affected by this subject in a broad variety of ways. And so all of us today uh, need to be sensitive to that, and, and I hope that, that you know my heart, that, that I've interacted with many of you about these various types of circumstances, and, and we uh, want to be mindful of that. But I hope that regardless of your experience, regardless of whatever, whatever things might affect your thinking, that all of us are united today in wanting to come to God's Word and hear what God said and get what God said right and be faithful to Him because Jesus is our authority on this subject, not our experience and especially not the assumptions and the pushes of our culture. So Jesus has a radical word for our world today in this passage. So the first truth that we want to see from this passage 
is that the law required the just treatment of a divorced spouse. So the law, the Old Testament law, required the just treatment of a divorced spouse. So verse 31 says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So just like Jesus did in the last two paragraphs, he begins here by referencing the Old Testament law. And this one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. So keep your finger here, but we do need to turn back to Deuteronomy 24 and understand what was said there because it does affect what Jesus is trying to say in our passage. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, of course, this is part of Israel's law. And so God says in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and she goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So so you can see in this passage that the context for Jesus' quotation is that a man recognizes some form of uncleanness, is the word in the New King James, in his wife, and so he decides to divorce her. Now, the word for uncleanness here is not a super precise word. It's just a general, in fact, the only other time it's used in the scriptures is in the previous chapter where it talks about leaving your your excrement uncovered, which is an unclean thing to do. So it's not a precise word. It's not a word specifically about moral issues. So God doesn't tell us what this uncleanness is, and it's important that we recognize that God never says that it is a legitimate grounds for divorce. No, rather, God just merely assumes that the man is going to get a divorce. He decides that there's something in his wife he doesn't like. And so God here is anticipating a reality that Matthew 19 will say is ultimately the result of sin. That men and women at times in marriage will become discontent with each other and they will get divorces. And when they do, God prescribes two things in this passage. So first of all, he says that they are to give their wives a certificate of divorce. Now, now what is that? Well, that would be a legal document of some form that the man would give to his wife that would explain why he is getting the divorce and also free her to get remarried. So as such, God's main purpose here is to protect the wife from false assumptions, from slander, you know, that maybe people would assume, well, surely he divorced her because she was adulterous. Uh, when that wasn't necessarily the case, and as well to protect her from economic destitution. Because, you know, in the ancient world, a lady couldn't just go out and get a job and provide for herself the way she probably could today. And, and if she had children in the case, it was very likely that, that the man would not just abandon her, but abandon her children. So, so God wanted the wife to be able to provide for herself and specifically have the ability to get remarried. And so God says they must give the certificate of divorce. And then second, uh, verses 2 through 4 say that if her second husband divorces her or her second husband dies, that her first husband cannot remarry her because God says this would be an abomination before the Lord because she has been defiled. Now, you're probably wondering, well, what in the world does that mean? And there's a few different ways that people understand the reasoning that God has. I think the most likely view is that God assumes that the original divorce was never valid. The original divorce was never valid. And so it's not that this lady did something like commit adultery, which the law said would require her to be stoned. No, rather, uh, the husband divorced his wife for something less something ultimately that God says is not worthy grounds for divorce, 
And so God does not acknowledge the divorce. She may have a piece of paper, but in God's eyes, that covenant is still binding. And so since the divorce was never valid, the woman's remarriage was also not valid. And therefore, when she got remarried and consummated that second wedding, it was, in the eyes of God, an act of adultery. Now, that's a lot for us to take in. That's very different from how our culture tends to think. But if you turn back to Matthew chapter 5, I think it's clear that that's how Jesus understands it. Because he says in verse 32, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, if a man divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, he causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. All right, so Jesus says that remarriage after an invalid divorce is adultery. Now that's, again, that's a heavy thing, and we're going to come back to that uh, later on in the sermon today. So, so you might have lots of questions about that, so just table them, and we'll get back to that. But ultimately here, God's point in the Deuteronomy passage is that the husband needs to be very cautious about divorcing his wife and just sending her on her way on a whim. And he's warning that before you abandon your wife because you're frustrated or discontent or whatever it might be, that you need to make sure, first of all, that you set her up for a good future by giving her this certificate, and as well, that you need to think about the consequences down the road, that you can't just abandon her and then think it's okay to bring her back. So ultimately here, the law required the just treatment of a divorced spouse. And in our text, Jesus is affirming God's heart in this. And I think that's worth just highlighting because... For the most of human history, women have largely been treated as basically, you know, just lesser than, or well, largely lesser than human, frankly, in lots of cultures. But scripture is clear that women are equal image bearers, and therefore there is no place for men behaving as if they are superior or as if women are theirs to abuse. Now, God made man stronger. And God gave us authority in the home to to provide for, to protect, and to serve. Not to serve our selfish interest. So so in verse 31 of our text, Jesus affirms this law. uh, but, But as Jesus did in the previous two paragraphs, he then proceeds to say that God demands something even greater. So so the second major truth we see in our text is that Jesus requires marital faithfulness for a lifetime. He requires marital faithfulness for a lifetime. So verse 32 says, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So I'd like to build our discussion of of verse 32 around three truths uh, that Jesus affirms in, in this verse. So first of all, God created marriage to be a lifetime covenant. God created marriage to be a lifetime covenant. Verse 32 is a strong affirmation of the marriage covenant. And to really appreciate just the force of what Jesus says in this passage for his original readers, we need to turn over to Matthew chapter 19 and think about a debate that was going on in Jesus' day. So Matthew chapter 19 Let's turn over there, and I'd like to read verses 3 through 11, all right? Because because Jesus here gives a a fuller answer regarding this issue uh, that that, that I think very clearly is in his mind in in our text. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So so you can see there in verse 3 that that the Pharisees want to know if Jesus believes that divorce is valid for any reason. And the reason that they are asking him that question is because it was a hotly debated subject in their day. And that's because of a debate that it arose between two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. So so Shammai, a rabbi who had lived in previous years, he was dead at this point, had taught that divorce was only allowable in the case of adultery. And in fact, he went so far as to say that if if your spouse commits adultery, you must divorce. And on the other hand, Hillel, he took a much more liberal view on the subject, and he believed that, that divorce was, was allowable for basically any reason at all. So, so he famously said in the Mishnah that, that, that you could even divorce your wife for burning your food. So if she's a bad cook, that's enough reason to, to kick her to the curb, all right? Pretty harsh, huh? And, uh, and as you would expect... Well, who do you think's view was more popular? Hillel's. You know, because we all like things to be easy. We don't like things to be hard. And you can see, I think, in the text here, that the Pharisees certainly leaned towards that side. That that, that when Jesus cites Genesis 1 and 2, they come back with, well, but hey, you know, Moses said we could do this. And I think you can also see in verse 10, the disciples assumed the same thing. Because when they hear what Jesus says about divorce, they say, Man, that's tough. We, we might as well not get married at all if, if, if we don't have you know, the ability to, to divorce our spouses. But Jesus doesn't care what was popular or, or what was easy for people to hear. No, he answers the question by going back to God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see that in verses 4 through 6, that, that he cites from Genesis 1 how God made two complementary genders, and from Genesis 2, that he made them to leave their parents and cleave to each other, and he even says that God joins them together in marriage. And verses 4 through 6 are incredibly relevant for our day, because we live in a day where most people would say that that marriage is a self-serving contract. You get married, and, and you stay married, because it's good for you, and it's good for her, and, and, and we'll stay married as long as it's best, for as long as we like it. And then once it's no longer serving my interests, well, I can just get a divorce. But Jesus won't have any of it. He says that God made mankind as two complementary genders to be joined in marriage. And when they get married, they become one flesh, They are to cleave to each other. And then he says, it is not your place to destroy what God created. So if you're married, when you took your marriage vows, it wasn't just that you made a covenant with each other. Jesus says that God joined you to your spouse. Now, now I do believe, and we'll talk about this later, that there are some exceptional circumstances where divorce is permissible. But but every marriage needs to begin where Jesus does. That God made marriage to be a lifetime covenant. So, So when you get married, if you're not married, you need to enter that marriage with the assumption that we will be together till death do us part. And if you are married... You need to approach your marriage not thinking, well, if it doesn't go so well, then then we'll just get a divorce. You need to approach your marriage from the standpoint of we're stuck together. So so we are going to make this work, and we are going to thrive together in our marriage. But of course, the Pharisees, they weren't going to let Jesus just dodge the debate by by citing Genesis 1 and 2. 
So in verse 7, they push back and say, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus follows with a fascinating reply. He says in verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So so Jesus says, you know, guys, instead of spending all your time worrying about Deuteronomy 24, you need to focus on Genesis 1 and 2. Because that's God's design. So so yes, in a sin-cursed world, Divorce will sometimes take place. But that's not the way God made it to be. God made marriage to be a lifetime covenant. And again, it is so important that we all begin here. So so let's follow Jesus' lead and let's build our expectations and our understanding of marriage not from what our culture tells us, but from what Jesus says. So so return now uh, to Matthew chapter 5. And the second truth that Jesus affirms in our text is that breaking the marriage covenant endangers each other's souls. Breaking the marriage covenant endangers each other's souls. And notice here in verse 32, and he says the same thing in Matthew 19, verse 9, that that Jesus makes a stunning assertion that, that sometimes can get overlooked. Well, really, it's the end of the verse. He says that if anyone divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, he causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That's that's a strong word. It's especially a strong word in our day of no-fault divorce. So so we live in a culture where where if you decide you're done with the marriage, you don't have to uh, provide valid grounds for your divorce or anything like that. You can just walk away whenever you want for any reason at all. But, but Jesus says that if a man divorces his wife for a cause short of immorality, he causes her to commit adultery, and that marrying her is adultery. So, so that's a strong word, but the question then is, well, what exactly does Jesus mean? Well, well based on what we saw earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 24, I believe it's clear that Jesus says, that an an illegitimate divorce does not break the original marriage covenant. So so just because two people separate and have a legal document that says that their marriage is over does not mean that in the sight of God that covenant is broken. And furthermore, Jesus assumes that that such a divorce puts the wife in an especially difficult spot. Since, since she has little means to provide for herself in the ancient world. You know, and, and if she's got kids to care for, then, then she's really in a tough spot. So, so the assumption is, is that she is going to have no recourse to provide for herself and potentially her children other than to remarry. But, but since that marriage, since, but since her divorce is illegitimate, the original marriage covenant is still in place. And so therefore, her remarriage is in a sense an act of adultery. Now now that is, again, a tough one to stomach. But, But that final statement of verse 32 is very clear. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So so when you marry an illegitimately divorced person, you are committing adultery by violating the original marriage covenant. Now again, that is a radical statement for our day. But, But Jesus says that just because someone has divorce papers does not mean that the bond God created is severed. And and so, so, so in that case, remarriage is adultery. Now, 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 the question then is, well, what does this mean? You know, some of you might say, well, well what about me? Because I'm divorced and I've been remarried. So is Jesus saying that, that I am living in a perpetual state of adultery? Should, should I end that second marriage? Should, should, or should we you know, refrain from, from, from sexual relationships? Well, well I don't believe uh, that Jesus w- would say that. And I believe, I mean, I do believe, all right, and I say this 
with, with compassion and as much grace as I can. But I would say, I, I do believe God would say, that the original consummation of that marriage was an act of adultery. Because it breaks that first marriage covenant that, that you were a part of and, and that is still in effect. But, but I would believe then that, that once uh, that, that first marriage covenant is broken by the second marriage, that that, that first covenant ceases to exist. And, and I think uh, as we go along today, uh, I'll make clear uh, why I believe that's the case. So, so the Bible, and as well, the Bible never encourages people you know, in that position uh, to abandon their second spouse or, or to refrain from the physical relationship. So, so if you are sitting there today and you're like, wow, I, I've sinned. I, I did something that God does not approve of. Well, I would tell you, confess it to the Lord. You know, maybe you need to confess a sin to, to someone that you have sinned against. But then go forward in the grace of God. You made a second covenant. And so be true to that covenant. Love your spouse. And enjoy the blessings of that marriage. And do so with, with confidence that God is pleased. So, so, so this, is, this is difficult stuff. And... Um, you know, and, and, and why, why is Jesus so strong? I mean, what, you know, I, I think it's just important to recognize at this point that, that Jesus here is strongly challenging the assumptions of his day. And he's challenging the assumptions of ours. And, and he's saying that God is not okay with no-fault divorce. And if you go down that road, you don't just do spiritual harm to yourself. You actually threaten the soul of the one that you divorce. And, and that's because I think it's important to acknowledge that divorce creates incredible hardship. You know, it's hard to be alone. And it's really hard to raise children alone. And my heart goes out to those of you that, that are trying to raise children without the support of a spouse that can support you in discipline, support you in childcare. It's hard. You know, and, and even in our day, you know, finances become a whole lot more complicated when you are divorced. And when you can't share income, you've got to you know, take care of two houses instead of one. You can't share expenses. And, excuse me, you can't share responsibilities at home. So, so Jesus here is strongly condemning the one who just needlessly puts his spouse away, puts her in that position or him in that position. And he says that breaking the marriage covenant endangers each other's souls. And so instead of looking for excuses to divorce, we ought to be committed to building healthy marriages that last for a lifetime. And then the third truth that Jesus affirms in verse 32 is that divorce and remarriage are permissible in specific situations, specifically here in the case of immorality. So so, so here in verse 32, uh, Jesus clearly states an exception to his condemnation of divorce. He says, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality. And, and, and look over at Matthew chapter 19, because, because uh, I do think it's worth putting our eyes on this, because he gives the same exception in verse 9. He says, and I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So, so Jesus, uh, I believe, very clearly states an exception there. Now, now I'll acknowledge uh, that, that not everyone agrees it with me and, or sees it as black and white. So, so you know, one challenge uh, is that, that there are parallel statements in Mark and in Luke. So, so Mark 10, 11 and Luke 16, verse 18, uh, basically quote this same statement from Jesus, but they leave the exception clause out entirely. So they just say, whoever divorces and remarries commits adultery. And, and so people are going to ask, well, if the exception clause is so important, then, then why wouldn't God include it in those other places? And, and that is a complicated issue. And, and I recognize, like today... I'm opening a massive can of worms, and there's no way I can smash all of them uh, in, in the time that we have. But, but I would just say for now that, 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 that God only has to say something once for it to be true. And, and I believe that God 
clearly states this in, in two places in Matthew. You know, as well, uh, there has been speculation as to why Jesus switches uh, from a very specific term for adultery. So, so the word for adultery is moikia, and it refers uh, specifically to an act of adultery within the context of a marriage. Uh, but in the exception, he switches to a different Greek word, pornea, which, which is a general term for uh, various forms of, of immorality all right, that, 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 that defy uh, God's design for the sexual relationship. So, so why switch terms if, if he is specifically talking here about adultery? So, so some people have speculated as to why Jesus might have done this. So, so some have wondered if, if, if pornea here is specifically referring to something like incest, all right? In, in which case, uh, Leviticus says that it was okay to divorce your spouse. Um, and, or others ha- have wondered if, if the immorality here uh, was during the betrothal period. So, so remember in, 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 in Jewish custom that you would become betrothed to your wife and essentially, legally, you were married at that point, but, but the consummation uh, of the wedding would not necessarily come for an extended period of time. So, so, so maybe the immorality takes place during that betrothal period. That would be a parallel, for example, to what uh, we see in Matthew chapter 1. So, so remember, Joseph assumes that Mary has been immoral, and so, and so they haven't yet consummated the wedding, so, so he is preparing to divorce her um, before they come together and consummate the wedding. But, but my, my, my issue with, with those ideas is that if Jesus were talking about one of those very narrow situations, he has plenty of language and terminology at his disposal that he could use to say those kinds of things. So, you know, when you, when you interpret Scripture, you know, I mean, Occam's razor should rule. You always go with the simplest answer to a question. You, you don't Look for something more complicated. And the simplest way to understand pornea here is that it means what it always means, which is that Jesus is saying that any immoral behavior that violates the marriage covenant is a legitimate grounds for divorce. And that's because when someone commits immorality, they are in that act breaking the marriage covenant. Now, now that might sound really strong. We live in a day where where immorality happens all the time. I remember as a kid when all the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky stuff was going on, and and, what would people say? Every guy's going to wander around. It's no big deal. Well, Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because the Corinthians believed the same thing. They believed that immorality was was a problem, but but it wasn't that big of a deal. And um, I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. And so verse 13 begins by saying, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. Now, now what that is, is that is a slogan. So, so the Corinthians were saying, well, God made your, your, your stomach to have food, so have food. And God made your body to have sex, so go have sex with whoever you want, was really the conclusion. But, God, but then Paul responds, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, folks, the language in that passage is incredible. And, um, and, and so, I mean, God says that, that, that all sex outside the context of marriage 
is in the realm of the one flesh relationship. Now, now Paul's not just grabbing terms randomly there, is he? He is saying that, that, that when someone commits immorality, they are, in a sense, joined to that person in a way that, that mimics the marriage covenant. So, so therefore, immorality is always a unique sin against God and against my own body. And if my body belongs to my spouse, the implication is, is that it is also a terrible sin against my spouse. And the Old Testament takes a similarly severe view of immorality. You know, again, Leviticus 20, verses 10 through 14, commanded Israel to execute anyone who committed adultery. It's a big deal, all right? It's a big deal. And of course, if someone is dead, the marriage covenant is, is clearly broken. All right, now, now, now with that, I do need to mention you know, another um, uh, objection or question that, that, that comes up is, well, well, if the law said that, that the adulterer was to be executed, then, then doesn't, and, and that's Jesus' context, then doesn't that nullify the exception clause? Because the assumption is that they're dead. And, and so, you know, for us, that means, well, since our government doesn't execute adulterers, which, by the way, I think is a good thing uh, in, in the New Testament period, then, then the offended is just stuck uh, with, with this adulterous spouse. But, but the problem with that, again, is that that's not what Jesus says. You know, so, so Jesus did not live in a world where, where adulterers were consistently executed. You know, in fact, Shammai said that if your spouse commits adultery, you must divorce her. All right? He didn't say you must kill her. And, and that was clearly the practice of Jesus' day. So, so for Jesus, you know, to, to read into this that, that Jesus is assuming the execution of the one who is unfaithful is, is, is really to make Jesus almost as if he's just putting in his, his head in the sand and not dealing with the realities of the world in which he lived. No, Jesus is saying that immorality breaks the marriage covenant in a way that divorce papers never can. It is a wicked sin, and it is so wicked that it justifies divorce. And, and I'll just say pastorally that, you know, so often, I mean, I've seen this happen. You know, someone in the church, you've got a married couple, and someone commits adultery. And, and, and so often, you know, we're, we're heartbroken about the sin, and we're especially heartbroken about the consequences that that could have for their family. We don't, see, we don't want to see kids lose their parents. We, we want to see everything healed. You know, and, so, and so what happens is all the focus goes on the person who sinned. And, and, and they say they're sorry. And we're like, yes, they said they're sorry. So, so now we've got to patch everything back together. And, and very often what happens is we end up doing incredible damage to the one who is offended. You know, because they have been traumatized by, by this horrible thing, and, and everyone's putting all their attention on the one who sinned and not necessarily on them. You know, they're rejoicing that this person is repentant. And you got this other person over here on the side that they've been traumatized by this terrible sin. They're struggling to forgive. And it's difficult. And I, and I think, you know, we, we've got to be very careful in, in, in our, as we work through these sorts of things with people that, that we never minimize the severity and the significance of a sin like immorality. It is a wicked sin before God. Now, now, I also want to be very clear that Jesus never says that immorality demands divorce. He only says it is permissible. And in Matthew 19, Jesus said that God's desire is always that a marriage would last for a lifetime. So, so, so he begins his answer to the Pharisees' question by citing Genesis 1 and 2. So, so, so that should always be our starting point with, with any of these situations. So, so in the case of something even like immorality, the goal should always be true reconciliation. So, so we ought to pray that the person who committed this grievous sin would truly repent before the Lord 
and that the offended party would, would, would have the grace of God to forgive. And we ought to pray that the marriage would be restored and be better than it ever was before. So, so that's always what we ought to be aiming for. But, but, but the reality is, is, is that oftentimes the offender is not repentant. And, and so, you know, it might be that, that he says he's sorry, but, but he really just wants to escape the consequences of his sin. You know, he doesn't want to pay child support. He, uh, he, he doesn't want uh, to lose, you know, the close connection with his children, or, or he doesn't want to be embarrassed. So, so, so he says he's sorry, but, but like we saw in small groups a couple weeks ago, you, you don't see the fruits of repentance that are described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and when that's the case, there is a really high likelihood that it's just going to happen again. And again, and again. Uh, I've got a close friend um, where that happened. So, so what do you do in that spot? Do you just stand by while your spouse is, is violating the marriage vows? But Jesus says that in that situation, divorce is justified. And, 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 I, and I don't have time to, to, to fully develop this issue today. Uh, but I believe that Matthew 19 verse 9 also says, that, that that person is justified not just to divorce, but also to remarry. And, and, and I say that, and it's not super clear in our English versions of the Scripture, but, but in Matthew 19, 9, the two verbs, divorces and remarries, are, are parallel. So, so the exception clause, and, and it, so in, in grammatically, the exception clause modifies both divorces and remarries. So, so it is adultery to, to divorce and remarry, except in the case of adultery, or, or immorality specifically. So, so I believe that if your spouse commits adultery, you are free to divorce, and you are not committing adultery by remarrying. Now again, that's, that's complicated stuff, and, and we don't have time to fully develop that today. And beyond that, you know, again, we don't have time to, to, to go there in full, but I do think it's, I, I do need to say that, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul builds off of our text by addressing a new situation that came up in the Gentile church. So he says in 1 Corinthians 7, I say this, not I, or, or not the Lord, uh, speaking of a, a clear statement of Scripture in Matthew, uh, in the Gospels, he says, I say in addition to that, that, that in that situation, you know, the situation there would be that you have, you know, basically this couple's married, one partner in the marriage gets saved, the other one does not. And, and he says that if your newfound faith in Christ drives the unbeliever away, he says you, in, in verse 15, you are not under bondage, all right? And, and, so, and so Paul says, uh, you don't need to feel this, this weight of, of obligation at that point, the marriage is severed. And, and I do, you know, and I would just, again, we don't have time to fully develop this, but I would add that I believe that the biblical ethic uh, would leave room uh, for some other special circumstances. You know, if a, if a, if a partner in a marriage is being abused, or his or her children are being abused, that when you look at the whole of Scripture, God would not encourage a person in that situation to just stay under that that in fact, you have a right to protect yourself and you have an obligation to protect your children and, and to leave that sort of situation. So, 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 so there are complicated situations. You know, and this, this stuff gets sticky really fast. But, but I think ultimately, you know, we, we need to make sure that, that we come back to what Scripture teaches that we need to stay faithful to his word and seek ultimately not to do what is convenient for me, but to do what God says and to encourage each other along that road. So, so, so to wrap this up, I'd like to just speak to four different groups in this room, kind of, kind of provide some application to pull this together. So first of all, if you are married, Jesus would say, guard your marriage. Now, now, you may not always feel this way, but your marriage is a wonderful gift of God. It was designed by the Lord to be a reflection to the world 
of Christ's relationship to the church. And he made it to be a lifetime commitment. So, so rejoice in the gift that God has given you. And keep your mind anchored to God's design as articulated in Genesis 1 and 2. Not what the world says. You might have a buddy at work or, or a lady that you go to the playground with with your kids that says, you need to get out of that. I mean, get away from that, that punk. And stay faithful to God's design. A dream about growing old together. And don't ever take your marriage for granted. Guard your spouse and guard your marriage carefully. Because the healthier you are together, the fewer threats there will be to the destruction of your marriage. Secondly, for those of you who are single, prepare for a lifetime commitment. So so you might sit there today, well, I'm off the hook today. Because I'm single, so none of this applies to me. Well, 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 just because you aren't married yet doesn't mean that Jesus' words don't have significance for you. I mean, hopefully, God's going to give you a spouse someday. And, and understand that, that right now, you are building patterns and habits that are either going to lead to a healthy, productive marriage for years to come, or you are setting yourself up to really struggle throughout your married life. So, so you can be working right now to develop an appropriate biblical view of the opposite sex. You can right now build habits of purity and holiness that will be vital to a healthy marriage. You can develop the fruit of the Spirit. And and I like to say that that the fruit of the Spirit will take you a whole lot further in marriage than any compatibility test ever will. Because there's no way you can't get along with someone if you're both manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. You can learn right now how to be a servant and how to love sacrificially. You can pay attention to godly couples and and listen to their advice. So prepare yourself now for a lifetime of a blessed, joyous marriage. Third, for those who are remorseful, rest in God's forgiveness. Now, this is a hard sermon to preach because I know there are people out there in this room where we're hearing this stuff is really, really hard because of the mistakes, the sins that you have committed in the past. And you have regrets about how you failed in marriage or regrets about uh, other things. And I'd say to you that, that you should learn from the past, all right? Just pretending like it's not there does not help. So, so learn from the past, but understand that God doesn't want you to live in the past. So if you've sinned against the Lord... Confess it, and then rest in in God's promise to forgive. You know, leave the sin with Him. Psalm uh, 103 says that when God forgives, He removes it as far as the east is from the west. Now, Now, there might be consequences of your past sins that you will never escape, this side of glory. But that doesn't mean you can't have a deep relationship with the Lord today. It doesn't mean that you can't have a profound ministry And it certainly doesn't mean that God could even use your failures as a means of ministering to others. And then fourth, for the despairing, God is enough. Now maybe you're sitting there today, and this is a hard sermon for you to hear, because you are the innocent victim of parents getting a divorce. And it really affected your childhood. I mean, and it does. You know, Uh, I was a youth pastor for nine years, and and I watched kids that that clearly, I mean, it it rocked their world. And so I'd imagine there's some of you that that have been through that sort of thing. Maybe your spouse abandoned you. You did everything you could to to have a healthy, godly marriage, but your spouse still walked walked away. Maybe today you're an overwhelmed single parent. Or, Or maybe you're enduring a difficult and very disappointing marriage. You know, on your wedding day, you had all these dreams about how wonderful it's going to be, and instead you're living today in a hard, difficult marriage. And I can't understand, I can't fully understand any of those things because God has graciously protected me from all of them. And if you're in my position, you ought to give thanks for that. But I know that no family and no marriage will ever satisfy your heart the way God can. It can't. The only one that will ever satisfy your heart is Christ. Marriage never will. A perfect family never will. 
only Christ will. And God is enough for whatever burden you are bearing. So rest in him, trust in him, and just obey his will every day. And may all of us ultimately trust God's design and find our joy in pursuing his will, not ours. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that it is profitable, that it is relevant, and that it is fully sufficient for every challenge we face. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us in this room. Lord, there is significance in this passage for all of us. And so, Lord, I want to pray, first of all, that you would guard the marriages of our church. Lord, there are a few places where Satan attacks more than attacking our marriages. And he has won many victories and created incredible damage through attacking marriage. And so I pray, Lord, today that you would protect every marriage. And Lord, I pray that you protect our hearts. That all who are in this room who are married, that Lord, they would be faithful to each other that they would cultivate an exclusive love and that they would stay faithful to the marriage covenant till death do us part. And Lord, I pray for others who are struggling with the consequences of life in a sin-cursed world, that Lord, you'd give grace and encouragement and help. And Lord, I pray that we as a people would always remain faithful to your word and to your design regardless of the challenges that our culture may bring. And God, that you would bless us with wonderful marriages that exalt Christ and demonstrate to the world his beauty and his purpose. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word. In Christ's name, amen.